morning. <coughs> if you have uh, children you'd like to send down to the children's ministry, uh, they're welcome to head down there at this time. Um, if you want to escort them down there, or they're more than welcome to stay up here as well, it's up to you. Uh, but we do uh, offer that downstairs. Uh, I am not uh, Charles Gwynn. There's a few faces that are, are new to me, so I just want to make that clear in case this is your first time here. Uh, Charles asked me to fill in for him uh, while they were at family camp. We have a big family camp going on right, right now, and so that's what I'm doing. Um, and we're between sermon series today. Uh, we Charles just wrapped up the excellent Matthew uh, parable series last week, and so I'm kind of filling the holiday gap here. Um, and I was originally planning to directly address uh, a Labor Day theme this morning of work. The history of work, how God created work, uh, the effects of work on our society, and what is a healthy view of work. And I, I do think it's an important and interesting topic, and it, it obviously affects everyone in this room. You know, but as the weeks passed, uh, each Sunday, I noticed a little thread running through the parable series uh, that, that Charles preached that I, I finally just couldn't ignore it. And so, while it's not quite the sermon uh, that I had planned, um, I'm very excited to speak to you this morning about this topic. Um, and so this series, this sermon is titled Works of Self-Righteousness. Um, if you want to turn with me to Romans 3, starting in verse 9, uh, we will read there. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I want to praise you that you have provided for us in this time and turmoil. I want to thank you that we can gather together and share the breaking of bread and worship you. Father, please be with all those at camp. Keep them safe. I pray that those families could bond with one another and with each other and grow stronger in you. And I pray for, for this week, for the coming Wednesday night, uh, Bible studies and, and dinners that they will glorify you and that, that we can enjoy that, that time together once again. Please be with me. Help calm my nerves and please help me to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, for the rest of the morning here, I'd like to turn back to the Old Testament and look at this, these verses here in Romans 3 uh, through the lens of the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah is only four chapters long, but it packs quite a theological punch. As a piece of literature, it, it is very incredible. It's, it's got satire, irony, poetry. Most of us are probably more familiar with it on a pop cultural level, right? This is the story with the big fish, Jonah and the whale. At least that's what we talk about in Sunday school. And that tends to be the focus point, really. But today I would like to look at two responses to God in the book of Jonah. And so we'll start by reading from Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah is a prophet, and he actually shows up uh, in the book of 2 Kings before this. And he proph prophesies about the return of Israel to its former glory, just like it was in Solomon's day. Unfortunately, after this prophecy, the people later turn away from God, as is often the case if you've read the book of Kings. And Amos, a contemporary of Jonah, pronounces God's judgment on them. The northern kingdom is conquered, and the people of Israel are exiled. Their conquerors, the Assyrians, whose capital city is Nineveh. While the book of Jonah appears to take place before this happens, the Syrians haven't just arrived on the scene at this time. Their power is, in fact, waxing. They are vying to be a world power amongst the nations of that region, and they are enemies of Israel and the other countries that surround them. In fact, they are known for their ruthless brutality. Not only do we see in scripture, but also archaeology backs this up. They desecrated bodies in war. They impaled their enemies. 
They maimed their prisoners and slaves, cutting off their ears or noses. And that's the stuff that's it's nice to talk about in a Sunday morning service. Their notoriety was so great that we know from history that doomed cities that were surrounded by the Assyrian armies would commit suicide rather than be captured and subjected to the Assyrian cruelty. These were not nice people. But these are the people that God sends Jonah to. Go tell your enemies, the people who are soon to be the most feared nation in the world, that the judgment of God is upon them. And how does Jonah react? He goes in the opposite direction. Nineveh is east of Israel. He goes west. In fact, he actually plans to go as far as it is possible to go in the known world in the opposite direction. Tarshish is believed to be on the coast of Spain. So he's going across the entire Mediterranean. On the other side of it is the Atlantic, and there be dragons. You can't go any further at this time. And this is his plan. Moreover, we don't actually get a reason for this behavior. It's kind of surprising when you read these first few verses. What is a prophet of God running away for? Why does he run? We do get some reasoning later in the book, so let's continue reading. Starting in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep, sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on, on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now what have these sailors got to be thinking? Here's this guy who paid his fare, went in the boat, and fell asleep. And 
a storm so great comes upon them that it looks like the ship is going to be torn to pieces. They are hucking everything they can. You almost imagine in your head, a guy picks up a bag of grain or something, throws it, and he's like, oh, there's a guy sleeping here. Forgot about this guy down here. He's like, hey, we better do something about this guy. He's not helping us out. He's not panicked. Why is he not panicked? And then when they wake him up, he admits, yep, probably my fault. I'm fleeing from the Lord. And at the same time, he declares that his God is the one that made the sea and the dry land. So what would you be thinking if a guy told you this? Not only have you got us in trouble, but you're an idiot running away from someone you can't run away from, right? By his whole admission, his own admission, the whole thing seems ridiculous. So in chapter 2, we find that Jonah sits in the belly of the great fish. And he prays to God, and God commands the fish to spit him back onto dry land. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, he laid his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So Jonah gets washed up on the beach, and he gets told, hey, same thing as before, go to Nineveh. And so he finally does. And he preaches a five-word sermon in Hebrew, and everyone from the king down is cut to the heart by his declaration. He's not even all the way through the city. He hasn't walked through the whole thing. If you notice that, it says it's a three days walk to walk around the city. He's only done one day's walk. Five words in Hebrew he preaches. And look at the reaction from the Ninevites. They believe in God. They put on sackcloth. The king sits on ashes. They declare a fast where even the livestock are not allowed to eat or drink. They repent of their violence in the hope that God might relent. I like how it says, who knows? See, Jonah's sermon didn't even have a good end of it. He just says, you all getting killed. It's, It's happening, right? Yet in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be destroyed. There's no happy ending option in his sermon. 
But they say, who knows? We may be saved by God. God may have compassion on us, and the city may be saved. And it was. The city was saved. God spares them. And as we move into chapter 4, we finally get some idea of what's going on in Jonah's head as he responds to this situation. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. When the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals. In this discourse between God and Jonah, we the reader finally get to see Jonah's heart laid bare. And it seems kind of funny, doesn't it? Jonah is angry with God. That's after it says God relented, these people repented of their violence, and Jonah's mad. It's a, it's a strange response, and he's so angry that he wants to die. He says that multiple times. I'm so angry, I don't want to live anymore. Just kill me. Have you ever been so angry that you felt like you couldn't live anymore? You just wanted to die? I can't say I've personally experienced that. We've had some fits in my house that maybe makes me think that my kids have experienced that. And, I mean, maybe that means I did. Uh, you'll have to talk to my parents, and maybe I acted that way. But it, it almost seems to me he's acting a little bit like a petulant child. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit the perception I get. He throws a bit of a hissy fit about the whole thing. And it's, it's not because he was sending Jonah to a dangerous place where he could be killed for the message he was told to proclaim. No. In, in fact, the reason Jonah gives is the attributes of God. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, that phrase could be in the Psalms. I, I love that picture of God. But he is so angry, I can't help but hear his voice being angry about it. It's because of God's grace, God's salva salvation, 
He knows how God will react if the people respond to the message he was told to proclaim. And he doesn't believe that God should react that way. See, we see Jonah's self-righteousness as the motivator for all of his actions here. The irony, of course, is that Jonah is just as in need of God's salvation as the people of Nineveh are. Just before this, he was preaching to his own people that they needed to repent. They needed to appeal to God's mercy. And he's just as much a recipient of that grace, that unmerited favor, as the Ninevites are. It's not only as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, as a member and prophet of God's chosen people, who were the ones that were given intercessors in the priesthood, and they were given the Levitical sacrificial system, this whole system where they could get right with God, where Jonah has seen firsthand God's salvation. But actually, just the previous chapter, we see that in this particular story, Jonah is acutely aware of his need for salvation. You see, when he's in the belly of the fish, he uses the language of the Psalms to describe his situation. And he describes it this way. It's like being in the grave, being in the pit in shale in the realm of the dead. That's the way he feels. He is so lost down there in that belly of the fish that he feels like God is his only salvation. And what happens? God saves him. We know he has the fish spit him out onto the beach. And so from his own mouth, he admits his need. But still, we get to chapter 4, and his self-righteous anger has consumed him to the point he wishes he was dead. Now, what does this have to do with us thousands of years later? Well, I open this morning with Romans 3 to talk to you about works, a person's deeds and actions. In our culture today, your work defines you. It's your status. And we, for the most part, love our success stories. The self-made millionaires and billionaires, there's nothing celebrated like the American dream pursued and achieved. Someone coming up from nothing and achieving wealth and success and maybe even happiness. The pursuit of happiness, right? And I would say that this cultural admiration for hard work, this may be the seed of the Protestant work ethic, overlaps our moral life as well. A person involved in charity is to be admired. Do you volunteer? Do you donate to the cause? March in the protest? We even have terms we've coined to describe how you boast about your moral goodness, right? Have you ever heard the term virtue signaling? Our society understands that there are good deeds out there that need to be done even if sometimes we're a bit off the mark on what those deeds actually are. And we're also deeply aware that our deeds are being judged or will be judged by those around us. Is your Twitter feed clean? Is something going to come back to haunt you? Are you on the right side of history? How about are you a good person? How would you answer that question today? If a poll popped up on your social media platform of choice, would you click yes or no or maybe, I don't know? 
I think if you asked most Americans this question, you would get the yes answer. We like to think we are good, don't we? We have this standard we hold up to ourselves where we look around at everyone around us and we can see all of their flaws. Everywhere that they fall short and we can point our fingers and claim, I'm not like them, so I must be good. Maybe we would list off some types of people we feel we measure up to in a better way. At least I'm not a Nazi. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a racist. Maybe it's even as simple as, at least I'm not like Fred, who steals everyone's food from the fridge at work. For Jonah, it was, at least I'm not an Assyrian. I'm not an Ninevite. This is self-righteousness. It's this idea that there's evil out there in the world, and it's this amorphous idea that only really shows up in the news headlines and rarely personally affects us. The evil is an other. As we come off the bloodiest century in the history of the world, bloodier than the last 19 put together, we comfort ourselves that it's really only those few psychopaths or sociopaths It's those other folks out there that are the problem. I'm a good person. We find comfort in this idea. Really what we're saying is, I can save myself. And I'd hate to just pick on our culture either. You see, self-righteousness is universal. It's cross-cultural. Doesn't matter where you are from. History is littered with the tales and the bodies of we are better than them. It's pervasive in religion as well. If you want to achieve exaltation as a Mormon, you do so by your works. Islam teaches that your good deeds will be measured against your bad in order to determine if you can achieve paradise. And in cultural Christianity, we do the same thing. If I just get enough on this side and my bad stuff goes down, I'm good. I'm in it. In fact, every religion has something to say about your good works and what they can achieve for you. Buddhism, Hinduism, even the atheists can't help themselves. Now, I'm uniquely blessed to be able to have a good number of theological discussions regularly with my brother and sister. And just this week, my brother sent me a video where an atheist was attempting to justify himself and his belief systems by listing out all the ways that he was a moral person. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I am faithful to my wife, and so on. There's always some standard out there where we think we can and should measure up. Our response to God is, I can make it on my own merit. I'm good enough. Like the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. We work to save ourselves. This is the Jonah response the self-righteous response. We are going in the complete opposite direction of where we need to be. And we are just as foolish as Jonah thinking he could hide from God when we see that the truth of the matter is is that our work is not good enough. We can't save ourselves. It's not going to cut it. We just read in Romans 3, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even 
one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is good. We all fall short. None of us measure up. You see, it's not even about how you morally measure up with the Joneses next door. It's not even a matter of your outward works, your virtue signals. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 through 30, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough in, to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Be first reconciled to your brother and then come to present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. John summarized this idea in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's heavy. Can I look at my own heart and say I'm not a murderer? An adulterer? That I haven't stolen? And what's keeping me back? Maybe the law, maybe the consequences, but that's just self-preservation, isn't it? That's not a desire to do good, that's just a want to avoid trouble. You see, evil is not just some concept. Evil is mundane. Evil is not inhumane, it is human. It's the story of our world. The atrocities of our time were carried out by ordinary people like us. We've murdered 60 million children in our country in the last 50 years. Maybe it's time we were introspective instead of self-righteous. Really look at your heart and what you are capable of. As Jesus says, it's what's in your heart that condemns you, not just your actions. Just like the Ninevites, we each have a judgment against us coming down upon us, and we can't measure up to the law that's written on our heart. So let's talk about that Ninevite response. From a five-word sermon, they go into mourning. They see their wickedness, and without even being told they can, as their last de desperate hope, they fling themselves on God's mercy in repentance. What a different response in contrast to Jonah. God's prophet can't see God's grace working on his own life enough to care about a city with 120,000 children. 
But the people who were viewed as the terror of the land of that day are so swayed in response to God that they receive his mercy. Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something is greater than jo something greater than Jonah is here. The promised salvation is at hand. The one who is greater than Jonah has come to save us. As we read in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. You see, we aren't justified by our own works. We can't be. We can't live up to that standard. But there was one man who was righteous, the God-man, the Son of God, he came to the earth as a prophet and a priest and a king to die in our place. And he spent three days in the grave and rose again so that we can share in his righteousness. If you're a Christian here this morning and you find yourself buying into the lie of self-righteousness, Look at what you're doing. Weren't you drawn to repentance by the hope? And shouldn't you give that hope to others? And see them how God sees you. And if you are not a Christian, our God is a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. So cast yourself on his mercy and take on the righteousness of Christ and not your own. If you'll be standing with me, the praise team comes.